as we have learned by now, having familiarized ourselves with the broad teaching of Sri Aurobindo and the Mother, it is possible to realize the Divine, first to experience the Divine, and then realized in certain capital ways. One is we conceive of the Divine as above the universe, what is called the transcendental reality. And through prayers, through mental seeking, we establish some kind of contact with the Divine above. Then there is the Divine, which is conceived as spread in the universe. Universe is his body. He is the universal divine, the cosmic divine. And the sadhana of contacting, awaking to this universal omnipresence of God, is to become more and more conscious of the presence, first by mental conception, mental visualization, and seeking contact through objects or movements in nature, which can link us with the Universal Divine. The vast expanse of the sea, for instance, the blue welkin of the sky, the topless mountains, illustratively, these are certain formations which can tune us to the Universal Divine. Then there is the religious conception of God in the form of images, idols, <coughs> tokens, and one concentrates upon divine as present in them. And there is another way, it is to seek contact with the divine within. And of all these approaches, Mother gives 
the greatest importance to the divinity within. The divine is within. Not that the divine is not elsewhere, but is more vibrantly present in oneself. And this divinity within is what Shirovindu describes in one of his sonnets as the unworshipped God within. We hasten to worship God in so many external forms outside of us. We have no moment to look for him within ourselves. And the first spiritual movement, key movement, is to realize the divine presence within us. The discipline centers around the psychic, which is a spark of God, slowly growing in our depths. Now, Mother attaches importance that once you become conscious of the Divine Presence within, we should deepen our contact through whatever means is available, possible, and learn to consecrate our life to the Divine within. Consecration of life is something more than thinking and praying to the Divine during certain meditational hours. It is a 24-hour program, always seeking the approval and the identification of the Inner Divine. And what is not wholly consecrated to the divinity within us, Mother says, is in possession of all else, whatever is there in the universe, the entirety of things. They own us. They act upon us constantly through the senses. Attraction, something desirable, something which attracts our attention, something which excites us by its beauty, or whatever quality, 
or directly or mindedly by suggestions. In other words, we are constantly open to the action of the universal forces and movements, either at the level of the senses or at the level of the mind. Millions of thoughts, millions of suggestions come like a battery and impinge upon us. But if we are wholly consecrated to the divinity, this cannot happen because there is nothing of us which is open to anything else except the Divine Presence. That's one. Second, you are as much consecrated to the Divine within as you are conscious of yourself. Consecration implies that you are aware of the act of consecrating. You are aware of yourself as a being, as a conscious being, not as a helpless being. And the way to become and live as a conscious being is to unite at some point, to begin with, with the Divine Self within. Once you are attached, united at some point, then the consciousness gets a focus. It is not spread out. It gets a focus and it gradually spreads for the entire width and height of your being. The way to do it is concentration, aid of concentration. Normally, we are dispersed. Our thoughts are dispersed, our feelings are dispersed, our sensations have no direction. And of course, we don't speak of our physical movements over which we have a little control. It is the first step to learn to concentrate. Concentration, dharana, is to gather the dispersed energies at different levels of our being and make them converge as in a narrow space as possible and hold to it. In the old yogic language, to withdraw the senses, to withdraw the faculties from their dispersed condition, 
is called pratyahara and to hold them in one focus is called dharana now with this discipline we isolate ourselves from external influences because once this becomes a guiding movement of our life our concentration is fixed on something else than external influences we may move with 100 people we may talk to many people but our attention is always there and to that extent we are not subject to the action of external influences but we live in this world we don't live in an isolated place we have to have relation with others how do we do that another says relation with others must be not direct whoever it is the relation has to be through it it means that and by it that is we place the divine inner divine between us and others and it is with reference to that that we relate ourselves to others the result is when you are so tuned to the divine within you feel near to what is near to that you feel far from what is far from that let us call it the self the divine self or the inner divine now whoever by his lifestyle by his movements is away from this divine we find ourselves automatically at a distance whoever is near we find ourselves feeling close to that person we don't exercise our own attractions and repulsions which are mostly vital and mental in character the advantage of relating ourselves through the divine within is that those to whom you are to be near and those to whom from whom you are to be far is decided for you by something else and not by your desire driven ego that is as far as relations with others in the closer circle of people with whom you are obliged to live of whom 
you form a part as it were. She says, you must be a divine example to others. You are not asked to be a teacher. You are not asked to teach them, instruct them. No. A divine example to others, an occasion to, for them to understand and enter the path of life divine. That is, your way of life, your conduct of life must be such that those who look at it, watch it, unconsciously learn this is to be done. Yes, this is something, this is a model I have to follow. That is why Sri Aurobindo says in the synthesis of yoga, how example is more important and more decisive than precept. Precept is instruction, advice. That's not so important as example. The model which you offer, that is more telling than a hundred letters that you may write or dozens and dozens of instructions that you may issue. To be an example. Now, to be an example of a practicant of life divine imposes a terrible responsibility. You cannot afford to relax. You have to be vigilant that no undivine movement takes place in you, whether as a levity or in a movement of anger, whatever. Automatically, you mold your life in the image of the Divine. So, you are an example. Next, you have no right to interfere with the lives of others. Mother even goes so far as to say, do not even desire to make them progress. That will be arbitrary. Who are you to decide how your son or brother or somebody around you is to progress? What is his line of evolution? What is right for his nature? It is understood that each one has one's own nature. How can you tell the other person, you do this, you have to progress in this way? That may not be his way at all. So she says it will be arbitrary. That was why in our ancient tradition, a guru would not accept anyone as a disciple 
immediately. He would keep the person under observation for three, three nights. Observe, identify himself with him, know his nature, know the state of evolution at which he has arrived, understand the line of evolution he is to follow and what is the goal of his soul. Unless the teacher had the capacity to understand the other person, from all these angles, he would not undertake the responsibility of initiating the novice. Because just to impose a way, a discipline, which I have practiced, which has been more or less successful for me, on another is something despotic, unreasonable, violently interfering with the natural growth of the other person. So she says, do not even desire to make them progress. It will be arbitrarily, naturally. One cannot unite with the divine, whether inner divine or outer divine, in a day, even a year. So till you are definitely one with the divine, what do you do in your relations with outside people? He says, there, act according to the unanimous advice given by those who are the experience of this unity. Of course, there are contradictory advices. But we must know that one who has realized this divine unity, people who have done that, they will not give contradictory advice. People may be on the way, people may be sadhaks, their approaches and their verdicts may differ. But she says, according to the unanimous advice of those who have the experience of this unity, as long as we do not have the certainty of having that knowledge, we must have the humility to follow the teachings of those who have realized Next, as a result, or rather, in the preparatory stage and thereafter, the general rule for each individual is be in a state of benevolence. Now, benevolence 
see something which mother has repeated a thousand times. It meant so much for her. For us, it means an attitude of charity, an attitude of tolerance. But for her, it is a sunshine of some divine love. Maybe all around you may not appreciate the workings of divine love. They may not have arrived at a stage where they can understand what divine love is. Because at times, the working of divine love is not very pleasant. It aims at what is your real good and not what is your fancied good. So before you arrive at that stage of radiating divine love, you have to learn to be in a state of benevolence. Benevolence is an attitude, a spontaneous and a general attitude of kindliness, understanding, helpful understanding, charity, harmony, whether it is a child or a domestic or a colleague or a relative, you must have always a state of benevolence. The others should not have a fear, a nervousness in approaching you. What will you say? What will, uh, what will be the reaction? No. There should be a assured state of benevolence, benevolence. And that is the door for the manifestation of the divine love. And then she spells out benevolence. Be not troubled, whatever happens. Don't allow yourself to be upset. In which case, if you are upset, the, your state of benevolence will be clouded over, covered. So try to maintain a composure, an equanimity. That's not difficult, but then she says, do not be troubled, do not cause troubles. Many of us, consciously or unconsciously, are authors of so many troubles to others, through our speech, through our thoughts, through our acts. Others may not feel free to point out our lapses in this direction. But we do cause trouble to others and do not inflict suffering upon others. Suffering by a harsh word, by an unfavorable look, by a violent thought, do not do that. These things may look very Simple, but it is only when one starts practicing 
that one realizes how difficult they are. It is easy enough to be benevolent, to be not troublesome when things go well. When things go ill, when things go wrong, that is the time to test for ourselves. Are we truly benevolent? Are we truly understanding? Are we truly humble? These are certain guidelines which Mother gives in a small statement called the divinity within, which I felt is something to be written in letters of gold. Because it is, it is a rule for everyday life. Step by step, step by step, Mother was always very logical, very precise. And this is a typical example. The next uh, theme is about Abdul Baha, a great leader, of, um, teacher of this Baha'i movement. Mother was in touch with him during her days in Paris and about this Baha'i movement started by Abdul's father, Baha'u'llah. Sri Aurobindo has certain remarks, made certain remarks in an informal way. And uh, those are very interesting. He says, Baha'u'llah was an ordinary man. But some, at some stage in his life, his vital being received a light. Not a very light from a very high plane, but a mental light, but a light all the same. And having received it in his vital, it gave him some certain power which created the movement called Baha'ism. He used to see the light during his meditations, during his prayer hours. Apart from this light, he had the power of world. And the power of world is always the sign of a prophet. A prophet, if whatever he says, carries a power, carries a weight. And it tends to become true. So he had, his words were carrying power. He has again, power of telepathy. Because he was preaching a religion, which was not acceptable to the majority of the Muslims in that country. I believe it was uh, Persia. He was imprisoned. 
But through his faculties of telepathy, he could send directions to his disciples and build the movement. What was very somewhat unpleasant is that he had also the power of malediction, that is, curse. His words had power. And when he cursed, they tended to come true. He was in the habit of sending communications, letters, to various heads of state. And he would get information how they received the letter. It appears that when his letter was not received in a proper way by the Sultan of Turkey, he cursed him that you will lose your throne and your sultanate will be destroyed. Came true. Same thing happened with Napoleon III and also with the Shah of Persia at that time, who killed the messenger who took his letter. Now, this Baha'ism has become popular because it does not make high demands on the common mind. There are certain governing mental concepts like toleration, universal brotherhood, equality of man and woman, a very uh, novel concept in a Muslim country. So these are some of the basic principles of Baha'ism. And when he died, his son Abdul Baha, he had spent already 40 years in the prison. He had derived the vital force from his father. He would be receiving light in his meditations. He continued. He toured many countries and organized this movement of Baha'ism, which has millions of people all over the world. And mother had a fairly close contact with him. And uh, what she has to say about him and what she did, that will be the subject of our next session.